Welcome everyone to today's devotion. We are in Mark chapter 7, uh, or Mark chapter 8 rather, we're in chapter 7 uh, Friday. And here we have again um, uh, more rejection of Jesus, but it comes about in, a, in an interesting way. Uh, the first 10 verses are, um, are strange, and the reason is because that it's eerily similar to what we saw a few chapters ago. So before we saw the feeding of the 5,000, now we have the feeding of the 4,000. There, Jesus did it with 12 baskets remaining of food. Here it's seven baskets remaining of food. There it was five loaves, two fish. Here it is seven loaves and a few fish, right? So, so we have um, two stories that are virtually the same. It's just the details that, that are different. Um, and in fact, Mark knows it's the same story because in the very first verse he says, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat. So Mark is saying, I've already told this story. This is one of the things that is striking when you get into academic literature in that they, they act as if the gospel writers were unaware that the, that the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000 were essentially the same story. Uh, Matthew puts them um, like uh, in adjacent chapters. Uh, and, and so you, you think, well, if, if Matthew didn't know what he wrote in this chapter, um, or if he knew what he wrote in this chapter, what made you think he forgot about it when he wrote the next chapter, right? And Mark essentially does the same thing. Um, could it not be that that they you have the same story twice on purpose and then i think that is exactly the the case um in fact notice verse four and his disciples answered him how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place notice two things there one it's a question that they shouldn't even have to ask in fact jesus bring this up earlier or later as we'll see is that jesus has already done this Right? Jesus already de- already demonstrated he can feed all these people. But notice this this little detail that gets overlooked in its location, location, location. And that is that in Mark's account, they're in a desolate place. And we've we've been following this trajectory since chapter one. You remember that in the uh, temptation of Jesus, he goes to the wilderness, he goes to the desert, he goes to the desolate place. That is where the wild animals are. That is where uh, Satan dwells. That's where the demonic forces are. And he goes there to wage war. And we've seen over and over again, Jesus in desolate places, uh, sometimes to, to, to do ministry, other times to, to, to isolate himself for, for private time. And here he finds himself ministering to people in a desolate place. And so the disciples saying, yes, I, I get how you, you, you can feed all those people in that location in Israel. But what are we going to do when we're in this desolate place? And the answer is that Jesus provides uh, regardless of, of where we may find ourselves. So Jesus goes into the desolate place and provides this, this miracle. And of course, the numbers matter. Previously, 12, matching the 12 tribes of Israel. Here it's seven. It's an act of creation, the perfect number, seven baskets, so on and, and so forth. Well, um, it is striking that right after that story, we get this in verse 11 and 12. The Pharisees came began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Right? What else do you want from me? And of course, from a sign, what they're wanting to see is, is the moon turn the blood and the, the cosmic signs and all that sort of stuff. What Jesus has been doing is, is he's been showing the signs to uh, the blind 
to to the poor, to the needy, to paralyze the 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 demonized, to 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 the to the hungry. These are the signs of the true Messiah, and yet it isn't good enough for the Pharisees. And that's the thing about the critic. Nothing is ever good enough for them. And then we get this teaching from from Jesus, which the disciples completely miss. When they had forgotten to bring bread, now now you see the connection already, right? We don't you don't need to know anything else that happens. You can already see. Okay, so they were just in a desolate place, and they were short on bread. Now they are um, in the boat again, and they're on the other side, and they forgot to bring bread. So whoever's job that is just got fired, but they don't have bread. And so already Mark has laid the foundation for us to see what is going to happen here. Uh, And they had only one loaf with them in the boat, and he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, um, they take that line, and they don't think Jesus is talking about um, theological leaven, beware their teachings. Rather, they take it as a physical leaven, that, that they're short on bread. So you get there, verse 16, they began discussing with one another the fact they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact you have no bread? Do not, do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Notice, you, you have one loaf of bread with 13 people, more likely, 12 disciples and Jesus. Now, Jesus just took seven loaves of bread and fed over 4,000 people. Jesus thinks, look, I can take that little loaf of bread. You forgot to get more. I can take that little loaf of bread, and I can feed all 13 of us, no problem at all. Did you remember that? You were all there, weren't you? I can't get you miss this. So for the reader, yes, we may think, look, I've, I've read this story before. 4,000, 5,000, 12 baskets, 7 baskets. And yet, typical of us humans, we miss the point of the stories. So when Jesus says, uses it as as a picture of warning, uh, beware the leaven of these guys, Pharisees and Herodians. He is at the same time saying, believe in the leaven that I'm giving you, that that, that will fill you up even in desolate places. You will never grow hungry or thirsty or tired if you find your rest in me. Beware of them. They're like, I, I, is 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 he mad at us? So he says, why are you discussing this? Don't you perceive or understand your heart's hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? That, of course, is a connection to his parables, right? He's quoting Isaiah 6. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets were broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. The seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said, seven. He said, do you not yet understand? There is a bad leaven and there is a good leaven choose the the good leaven and um and thus in christ you are you're fed forever well after that verse 22 to 26 jesus heals the blind man of Bethsaida. some debate about it we, we don't have time to get into this passage much i just want to point out that the, the order is important so jesus uh, uh, does a miracle he's criticized uh, disciples his his students and then he does another miracle and all of those are connected um, because he just said, do you see and not perceive? Do you hear and not listen? And then what does he do? He then turns and opens the eyes of the blind. Right? This is a picture of the gospel. And then we get what is the real turning point of the gospel. So we're literally about 
right at the halfway point. I don't know how it breaks down in terms of verses, but there's 16 chapters. We're in the middle of chapter 8. So we're right at about the, the halfway point of the gospel. And it is here, everything changes. Matthew does the same thing. Matthew and Mark are very similar. Matthew's 28 chapters, and at, and, and at the end of chapter 13, we get this turning point, okay? So, so if you're just reading it as a narrative, and I would encourage you to do that with the Gospels, just pick it up and read from verse 1 of chapter 1 all the way to the end of whichever Gospel you choose. And I think you'll notice these narrative uh, um, events, but you'll find that the confession of Peter at Caesarea Philippi is the turning point. So we're going to get a lot of crosstalk. We're going to start marching towards Jerusalem, uh, which will climax, of course, in the cross to resurrection. And I trust you know the story well. Mark's account is briefer, as it oftentimes is. So Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. We need to note there it's named after Caesar and Philip, uh, Herod Philip. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, I would say Elijah, others, one of the prophets. Now, you'll notice that if, if you've been following along in our, in our look at Mark, this isn't a surprising answer. Everyone is starting to, to think there's something about this man. Remember, at first it was, yeah, we, we can't deny what he says and what he does. But that's Joseph's boy. We know his brothers and his mother. He, he can't be anything of, of, of great significance. And then as he continues his ministry, they, they start to really wonder, maybe there is something to this Jesus guy. So it's not surprising then that here at a strategic place that goes beyond our, our, our ability to go in much detail, Jesus asks this question, and the answers are John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets, and, and th- those, are, those are incredible people to be compared to. Then he asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? Because the disciples have gotten to see more to hear more than everyone else. And what's Peter's answer there? You are the Christ. Notice what we have here. For the first time, someone that is not demonized professes Christ to be the Messiah. Ever since chapter 1, verse 1, remember that this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And Peter's answer is, you are that. You are the Christ. But then all of a sudden, the story takes a strange turn. And starting in verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said this plainly. I love that from Mark. I'm going to go be killed by the religious elites. Don't worry. I'm coming back. So Mark has already ruined the ending, hasn't he? And that's fine. Um, but but he wants to make it clear. This is the first of, I think, three predictions um, over the next uh, chapter or so. And and notice the reader is saying, okay, you're the Messiah who can feed the multitude, heal the blind, liberate the demonized. Um, all You have supernatural um, um, wisdom. But you're going to die a brutal death on the religious elites? How do you put one with the other? doesn't make sense, does it? And that's Peter's point. In verse 32, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of, of man. In Matthew's account, uh, rebuking uh, Peter is the same language Jesus used to rebuke, rebuke Satan in the temptation. Right, so so here in Matthew, it would be Matthew 16 and Matthew 
4. Um, here, I, I don't know if it's the same language because we only get one, one or two verses with the temptation. But in Matthew, he makes that very clear. However, I will say the language of rebuke, because Jesus is constantly rebuking the, the demons, what I'm not saying is uh, uh, Peter is possessed here. What I'm saying is that Peter trying to stop Jesus and fulfilling his mission is itself demonic because that is what Satan wants. And that's the problem, isn't it? We want a Jesus that we can mold into our image. What we don't want is a crucified Jesus. Because you'll notice what a crucified Jesus demands is a crucified disciple. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever will lose his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man return uh, give in return for his soul. That's the point. Jesus is going to lose his life and in so gain it, not to mention his kingdom. So too we're called to lose our lives so that we, we may gain. That's the part we don't like. We don't mind having a cross around our neck. What we don't want is a crucified Savior that demands crucified discipleship. This is a radical call from Jesus because the cross was the image of brutality, of injustice, and of evil. And Jesus says, I want you to take that image upon yourself, to lose everything you have and are for the sake of Christ, for Christ is everything. After all, he is the one who gives food and water to us in the desert. He's the one that opens our eyes so that we can see yet again. But first, you've got to lose everything. You've got to lose your life and give it all up. So when we refuse to do that, we are choosing idolatry over Christ. And that is the root problem with the American church right now. We're choosing something that we think is greater than Jesus. And there's no gospel in that. Well, Lord willing, we'll see you guys here tomorrow. I hope you all have a great Martin Luther King Jr. Day and celebrate because um, our nation certainly needs uh, healing, um, and not just racial healing, but just healing in a host of other areas. Hope you have a great day, and uh, uh, Lord willing, see you here tomorrow. Have a good one.